Hi there, I'm Jeff MacArthur, and welcome to the Jeff MacArthur Podcast for this Thursday, October 1st. Coming up, we talk about why some snowbirds are still thinking about heading south this winter, despite COVID and the closed border. Also, safe alternatives for Thanksgiving this year, and challenges facing families and educators who have signed up for online learning. All of that coming up right now. Okay, first day of October, it's officially fall. Cooler temps, of course, are moving in, and a lot of snowbirds are actually starting to consider their options when it comes to maybe, just maybe, returning south this winter. But are they better off at home, despite the freezing temperatures that are on the way? Let's ask our travel expert, Marty Firestone. He's on the line and joins us now on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Marty, my friend, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Uh, going south, I mean, is it advisable uh, even a couple of months from now, do you think? Yeah, it's mass confusion going on right now. We have we have three camps. We have one camp that will not leave Canada regardless until we have a vaccine or a cure. We have one camp that says, as long as the travel advisory is in place, I'm going nowhere. I don't plan on quarantining 14 days and going back and forth. And we have the third camp, which is, I'll call it, Reckless abandon. They are leaving. They are going from today till April, and I don't think half of them care whether they have COVID coverage or not. All right. Well, can you clear up the border situation for us? It's still closed to non-essential travel, the Canadian-U.S. border, until I think October 21st now. Uh, is fleeing cold temperatures, is that considered essential travel? Evidently, at the border, you're going to use that as your reason, because this has been the biggest problem I've seen. We, Our government is saying avoid all non-essential travel. Our airlines and insurance companies are incentivizing travel with free COVID coverage included, and people are totally confused to the point with what are they even going to say when they get to that border? Are they saying they're going on vacation or they have to go for business, or what is the reason they're going to use? All right, so for those that do want to go and get out of the Canadian uh, winter, is there better areas to go to than others, do you think, Marty? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, you know, Florida's the number one spot typically in my group of snowbird travel. Then we've got Arizona, then we've got California and Palm Springs. You know, each area changes, but they're still reporting tremendous amount of cases daily there. So I I don't think there's any one spot that is advisable at this point, albeit people are saying, I'll go to my community, I'll go to my condo, and I will bubble there for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. And obviously we're talking snowbirds and, you know, elderly people or older people anyways, and kind of the vulnerable group when it comes to uh, COVID-19. So what would your advice be, Marty, for those who just want to get out that they want to travel south? I I have to believe they should uh, look into what Canada has to offer, quite frankly. The, The fear of them heading down south and then, God forbid, uh, coming down with COVID as an example and having to go to a U.S. hospital, potentially be on a ventilator for two or three weeks could run in to half a million dollars of costs, of which these COVID coverages that are being included with either airline tickets or some offerings from insurance companies are capping out at 200000 for any condition related to COVID. It, it's a nightmare waiting to happen. Yeah, do we know, uh, you and I have spoke about this uh, in the past when it comes to the so-called COVID coverage or insurance. Uh, For the most part, it's only for a number of days. And I mean, who knows? Uh, I mean, you got to look at worst case scenarios here, right? And uh, what your bill could possibly be, uh, God forbid, if you end up in an ICU in, in the U.S. or another foreign country and even on a ventilator. 
Yeah. And the fear there is, of course, they're going to handle the citizens of that country before you. And what if there's only X amount of beds in an ICU unit? Then what? Then you're hoping your insurance is going to send a plane and bring you back to Ontario. There are no guarantees whatsoever that that's going to happen. So it's it's challenging at best as to how one should handle this. And it's pretty scary. Yeah. Do you also have to consider trying to get back? Because if you are diagnosed with COVID, and let's say you spend some time in a hospital, I mean, does an airline have to uh, accept you uh, as a passenger, bring you back to Canada? Is that a risk that an airline could say that we're not willing to take? Yeah, it's a great point. Like, imagine if you're just not feeling well and you've got a fever and you say, you know what, I'm going to hop on a plane and come home. And then when you get to that airport, they're going to do, this is even prior to potentially rapid testing, they'll do a thermometer check. And what if you have 103 fever? You know what, they'll send you right back to your place and tell you to go to the local emergency. So there is no guarantee about flying home commercially for sure. And then my concern is even if you have one of these pseudo type insurance policies, whether they will fly you home, because that's all relative to having a bed available in a Canadian hospital. So it, it, it's just it's just a real mess. And this is uh, coming from somebody who, you know, lives and breathes this uh, every day as a uh, travel expert, somebody in the travel business. Uh, your advice this winter truly is uh, maybe get some uh, extra logs on the fire? I, I'm I'm leaning that way, as you say, even though that's my business and I should be in a sort of a sales motif. I have to think first and foremost of what are the consequences. And quite frankly, I have gone on record saying the next two to three months to hold tight, wait and see if the advisory is lifted, which, by the way, is October 21st. But it is just each and every time been extended another 30 days. And, and I believe it will get extended another 30. And I believe actually it'll go into the new year. So I think at best. One's hope of getting away would be in the new year if 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 it all goes well. All right. Well, Marty, appreciate the straight talk as always. That's why we love having you on. And uh, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Thank you for having me. Marty Firestone is a travel expert. So we have 500 more cases, just a little over 500 more COVID cases in the province today. And modeling shows we could be up to 1,000 cases per day by the middle of this month. So what should Thanksgiving look like this year? Big question that a lot of families are asking right now, and here were some answers. Let's welcome in Leanne Lyon-Bartley, also known as Canada's safety diva. She joins us now on Global News Radio. Leanne, good afternoon. Hi, good afternoon, Jeff. Nice to have you with us. Uh, What do you think uh, Thanksgiving from a safety perspective? What should it look like uh, this year? Do we even know yet? I mean, can it be business as usual? Yeah, it definitely can't be business as usual. And nor should it be. You know, we need to follow the public health rules and the guidance that's been put out in all the different provinces and, and consider keeping it very, very simple. Keep it quiet this year. So just immediate family. I mean, uh, not a big traditional family gathering, because I think there's a lot of people that uh, are still trying to get their heads around the, the bubble. What is uh, my bubble? What should my bubble be? Can my bubble include aunts, uncles, nieces, nephews, that sort of thing? Yeah, you want to keep your numbers very, very low and, and follow the advice. So a lot of the advice has been saying stick to your immediate family, so those that are under your roof and, and don't include people who aren't under your roof. But, you know, I think you can also come up with some creative ways to maybe include additional family members and maybe it's that you connect virtually in the different households at some point during your Thanksgiving meal, but stick to the, the people in your home. Okay, so have uh, part of the Thanksgiving meal there in your home with immediate family, but maybe have the iPad set up and 
do a bit of a Thanksgiving FaceTime or Zoom? Yeah, yeah, I think that would be the better approach for this year. Not another Zoom meeting, please, Leanne. I beg of you. <laughs> the, the good news, though, is if you do Zoom Thanksgiving, you don't have to set places for them. You don't have to clean up after them. That's right, and you have less food. And, and you know what? You could even have, like, a little cook-off competition or something or a dessert cook-off. Who knows? But, you know, have some fun with it, and at the same time, be safer. Yeah, I guess it really is kind of all in your attitude, right, and how you approach this. I mean, obviously, families are going to be disappointed. It cannot be business as usual this uh, Thanksgiving. But uh, if you meet it uh, with a smile and look at this maybe as just a different way of uh, celebrating rather than uh, looking at uh, what you don't have, look at uh, what you do have, uh, what you should be giving thanks for. Yes, absolutely. So one of the things that I kind of have going is hashtag safety by positivity. And I think this is another example of that. It is disappointing. We might not be able to celebrate the way we traditionally celebrate. But let's look at, just like you said, the things that we can be thankful for. And at the same time, follow the COVID health rules that are being provided for us every single day. We see the numbers going up. And so we all just need to buckle down and follow the rules. And we will get through this. I know we will. Absolutely. What do you think about Thanksgiving dinner outdoors? I mean, weather dependent, uh, obviously, but uh, would that be a good alternative? Yeah, I would say that that is an alternative. All of the guidance and information does show that, you know, your num- your risk goes down if you are outdoors. But, you know, I still say that because we see the cases going in the wrong direction, you want to even, if you're going to do it outdoors, just stick to the family that's in your home and, and let's all just, you know, reduce how many people we're going to be around this Thanksgiving so that we don't see yet another spike after a long weekend. Yeah, without a doubt. That's what everybody's uh, fearful of. And again, the modeling is showing right around Thanksgiving, we could see upwards of a thousand cases per day in the province. Do you have any other suggestions or alternatives uh, for people when it comes to Thanksgiving uh, next weekend? So there's a there's, there's another risk that often comes along with Thanksgiving and larger meals. And, and that's food safety. So very often around these holidays, we do see more people getting foodborne illness as well. So I do like to remind people that, you know, there are other risks and hazards to think about at this time, and it's not just COVID. So if we can make sure that we cook our food to the safe temperatures, which you can find online, Health Canada provides really great information about food safety during Thanksgiving, You know, we can avoid maybe some unnecessary sickness, which would then lead us to have to go to health care. And we want our health care folks focused on COVID and not having to burden them with anything else. So just a few simple food safety rules as well, which can help reduce the likelihood that you might get sick at that Thanksgiving dinner. You're going to want to keep cold things cold and hot things hot. Yeah, great tip and a great point. And along those lines, when it comes to food, just occurred to me, maybe plan your shopping and do it early so not everybody is at the grocery store a day or two before Thanksgiving. Yes, absolutely. And and during this pandemic, I've never done the whole order online and deliver food thing. But, you know, I have ordered now and then just gone and picked it up. And, you know, you drive up and they put the stuff in your trunk and then you're on your way. So, you know, there's some, there are some other alternatives, too, that can help us reduce how many people are actually going into the supermarket. All right. Some great ideas and some great tips as the countdown to the long Thanksgiving weekend is underway. As here we are, we've flipped the calendar. It's the 1st of October. Leanne, thank you so much. Appreciate your time with us. 
Yeah, thank you, Jeff. Be well. That's Leanne Lyon-Bardley, also known as Canada's Safety Diva. And let's get back on the topic of online learning, because we've got some pretty eye-popping numbers coming from the Appeal School Board today to go over. Peel says that half, 50% of all elementary students have now opted for online learning. And joining us now to discuss a little further is Dr. Alex Koros. He's a professor of uh, professor of education and media studies at the University of Regina, and he joins us now on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Doctor, good afternoon. Welcome in. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Uh, in the COVID era, is this kind of the growing trend? I mean, how surprising are these numbers that we're hearing like half of one school board's elementary students are saying, you know what, we're going to stay out of the classroom, we're going to stay home and learn? Yeah, it's not surprising at all. We've seen uh, in the province that I'm in Saskatchewan, we've seen a, a really rapidly growing number, uh, and it surprised everyone. Uh, with this mean, this mean meant uh, a lot of shifting of teachers from their face-to-face classrooms, their regular assignments to uh, the online school, and this transition has uh, really been a surprise to teachers and to, and to students and to everyone involved. So uh, th- this is something, uh, a trend that's certainly happening right across Canada and beyond. Yeah, can you tell us a bit about the experience there in Regina, in Saskatchewan overall, as compared to uh, Ontario, where we're hearing there's teacher shortages, we have school boards and teacher unions saying they need reinforcements. Uh, here in Toronto, the school board has said they need upwards of 500 more teachers in order to meet demand for online learning. Is the situation similar where you are? Similar. I think that, uh, you know, at the get-go, I think your student-to-teacher ratios were a bit better, um, but now ours are, are quite a bit worse than, than they were. Um, so, so I think that we're seeing, you know, as the transition moves over, there's temporarily sometimes, you know, 100 or 100-plus 100 students per teacher in some cases. And in the transition that happens, hopefully that gap gets quickly fixed, but uh, ultimately it's, it's very similar uh, in many ways between Ontario and Saskatchewan and across, uh, across Canada that this, this transition, especially because of the unanticipated number of uh, parents opting for online learning, is making it very difficult to plan. Right. Why is it so difficult to uh, staff and deliver online learning? Uh, maybe you can tell us as somebody who studies this and has uh, looked into this, because I think there's some people who are wondering, why can't we just have what, one teacher broadcast to as many students as need to take grade four uh, math? Obviously, in-class studies show is the better uh, way to impart uh, lessons, but uh, because of COVID yeah. and the pandemic, we've had to find uh, different ways. Uh, how come one teacher can't, I don't know, teach to 400 grade fours? Yeah, I, th- I think that's been tried uh, and it's failed many times in the past. They, the, the art of teaching really does need a lot of social interaction um, and engagement. And, and kids you know, from the K-12 to uh, ages uh, certainly need a lot of engagement and teacher time. And so broadcasting information isn't just uh, you know a way that we that we would even uh, consider learning these days because learning is much more than the transfer of information. So um, you know it ends up being much more like Sesame Street where there's no engagement. Uh, you know Sesame Street has its positives, um, but it, there needs to be engagement. There needs to be assessment. There needs to be uh, socialization. Um, all of these things can happen when you're looking at a broadcast technology to effectively take over the model of learning. Is Canada behind the curve, do you think, when it comes to uh, online learning? It seems as if, obviously, I mean, 
who could have prepared for this and the pandemic and what we've seen over the last six months, half year. Having said that, it seems as if we're really uh, behind when it comes to what a lot of people would think is kind of the future uh, online and education having some sort of role in that. Well, I, I think we're not necessarily behind. Uh, there are ways, you know, in terms of the learning space. I think Canada has always done on performance measures when you look at uh, PISA tests, for instance. But what, what we have problems with here is certainly there, there's a number of different things. So first of all, the digital divide is a big problem. Uh, you would think at one point in the 90s, we were one of the most connected uh, uh, nations across the world. But now we see great disparities in, in how we're actually connecting and who has access. So that's one of the biggest things with online learning. Students may not have devices or Internet access to, to participate successfully. Then we look at the, the, the home gap. If we're going to do this well, um, we probably need uh, a parent or a guardian, someone at home to even take up a mentorship role. And, and of course, that's very difficult to do, especially when we're all working or, you know, in, in a family with, with two parents where um, we might be both working. So there's some social disparities there as well. And even in Peel, thinking that uh, even that half of the, uh, you know, parents or guardians can even opt to you know, somehow be home or support or have an adult in the, adult in the house is quite surprising. And obviously, there's probably been some sacrifice that are taken up here. Um, so I, I don't think we're necessarily behind, but there are some socioeconomic considerations that we really have to get into. And there's technical infrastructure uh, uh, factors that we have to really upgrade when we, when we look at what's available, what software is available. Um, compared to the U.S., when it comes to technology in integration, we're way behind when it comes to um, you know, the equipment of the equipment we have in school, the, the level of one to one learning, uh, we're just much, much underfunded than some of the states in the U.S. So for all those reasons you just just mentioned, whether it's technology, social disparities or the digital divide, is online learning then not the future? Well, it, it depends on who you're talking about. The online online learning, I've, I've done it for 20 years and it's been very successful, and I've done it both in the K-12 and, and, uh, and, and you know, post-secondary uh, area. And it can be very successful for, for some students, um, but it depends. Uh, I know with the reports from Peel, um, you know, some kids are really thriving on that social interaction when they're in the K-12 uh, classroom. Others feel that it's distracting, and I noticed that there's been reports around that. Um, for, for many students, they have to be really thinking about you know, what are the new skills that we have? Can you really be an independent, motivated, semi-autonomous or fully autonomous learner? That's very difficult for lots of students to really be able to be, you know, someone motivated at home. And the teacher really has to do much, much more work to actually keep their students engaged. So it's, you know, they're, uh, you know, if, if teachers are having a tough time with this, I mean, this is an entire discipline. Online learning is a whole separate dis discipline in itself, and you have, to, you have to think that teachers are just being thrown into this with very high class loads, uh, big workloads, more students than they might even have in a regular classroom. And then all of this is changing in real time that, you know, you might have 20 students today, 50 students tomorrow, and you're trying to kept, catch up with everyone. You're also uh, dealing with a lot of uh, school home interactions, lots of one-to-one, -one, dealing with new technologies. So down the road, I, I think there's a, a place for online and blended uh, learning. Uh, certainly, probably blended and alternate approaches, approaches would be 
more uh, prevalent than, say, fully online. I mean, most of the research says that online can be as good as face-to-face, -face, but something like a blended approach can be better than both. All right, so we might have, sorry to interrupt, but some growing pains here to, to get there, and we're going through that right now. Is there a concern or a fear that this generation right now uh, may suffer because of what we're going through uh, when it comes to uh, learning and education? Well, I think the whole thing is traumatic as it is. Uh, but certainly, I mean, I've got four children, and I, I'm, you know, my kindergartner uh, had to finish right, uh, you know, halfway in March. And, and, you know, there's two educated parents that, we're still trying to fill the gaps that the teachers were, uh, you know, weren't able to, you know, succeed with. And so I think, and, and thinking about my high school uh, student as well, um, thinking about the gaps and the things they've learned, we've really, you know, come to appreciate how important schools are. And so missing these steps, missing these objectives, these outcomes, uh, you know, in their regular development is going to be tough on all students. So, uh, we're doing as best as we can, and I've got to really you know, thank teachers for doing what they're doing. But ultimately, it's it's going to be tough on everyone. Missing this much school and making this much change in the middle of a school year is going to be tough on everyone developmentally. Uh, and just the anxiety that comes with it, I think, is not not going to be easy on this generation. For sure. Dr. Carlos, great conversation. Really appreciate the time with us. Uh, thanks so much. Very informative. Thank you. Take care. Dr. Alec Koros is a professor, professor sorry, of educational technology and media at the University of Regina. And thanks for downloading and listening to the Jeff MacArthur Podcast. A reminder, you can listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 Eastern at 640toronto.com. Find us on Spotify, search my name, Jeff MacArthur, or download us wherever you find your favorite podcasts.